And I think those direct-to-consumer brands are the ones that are probably suffering the most. These advertisers are also the ones that tapped into social media and search digital marketing avenues. And a lot of the times they don't have experiences with attribution specifically. And marketing is usually the first budget to get cut. When you are a smaller direct-to-consumer brand, no matter how successful you are, we're starting to see them turn towards agency partners to get the help where they need. That's Carly Foy, Director of Sales at StackAdapt, our sponsor on this episode of the Digiday Podcast. Later in the show, Custom talks with Carly about the changes agencies are experiencing and how they can address remaining skills gaps. Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. And I'm Tim Peterson, senior media editor at Digiday. Tim, you had this week's conversation and your guest was Paul Neinstein, who's the co-CEO of Project X Entertainment. I'm curious why you wanted to have him on this week. Yeah, so um, Paul, so Project X Entertainment, uh, it's a production company. They're behind shows like The Night Agent on Netflix, um, movies like the latest um, Scream movies. So Paul and I were talking at one point, I want to say it was like last summer. And I asked him like towards the end of the conversation, like anything like keeping you up at night or anything like big on your mind, you know, these days that I should be keeping in mind for, you know, when I'm talking to folks going forward. And he's just like, yeah, like this potential, you know, writer strike. I'm really, I'm pretty, you know, concerned with what could happen there. And he was the first one that I had talked to who kind of brought that to my attention. Mm. And and now it's come to pass where um, early May, the Writers Guild of America, which you know represents you know screenwriters on shows and movies, um, went on strike. And now there's the potential where the Directors Guild and the Screen Actors Guild may also go on strike. And so it's just like, once again, this monumental moment for the entertainment industry and you know the potential for complete work stoppage. There's already been um, a lot of movies and shows that have kind of halted production um, because they were like still kind of in the writing process and the writers went on strike. But if directors go on strike, if actors go on strike, like that grounds everything to a halt. And so I wanted to have him on to kind of help me understand like the issues that are at play here, but then also the implications of Um, what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And did he say whether or not like production at his own company has been impacted yet? I believe he said like not fully impacted, but about to be impacted or they're kind of preparing to be impacted. So they're in production on a movie. I'm pretty sure he said it was a movie. Um, And so it's out of the writing process, but because the Directors Guild and the Screen Actors Guild could go on strike um, after June 30th, um, they're already preparing for potentially having to stop that production at that point. And so they're looking at these next few weeks of they've strategized how much they can get done in these next few weeks. Um, I don't think he said that they'll be able to complete the whole project um, before that June 30th deadline, but you know, getting enough done so that when they have to ramp back up, whenever, you know, hopefully um, the deals are done and the work stoppage would end, that that would be as painless as possible. Got it. Well, I'm very interested to hear what else he has to say. I'll let you guys get into it. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Kayla. Paul Nancy, welcome to the Digiday Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Paul, I really wanted to have you on the show because I think it was like last summer or so when we were talking just you know catching up and i asked hey you know what's something i should be keeping an eye on or you know what are you looking ahead to and i was expecting is you know it would be something related to netflix or disney or the streaming wars and you said potential for a writer's strike I'm, i'm pretty that's a big thing on my mind and i think you were the first person who kind of brought that to my attention. So when the writer strike did in fact happen about a month ago, you're the first person I thought of like, I want to have Paul on the show to kind of like break down what's going on here, what all of this means. So I'll kind of, you know, start there. Like with the writer strike, it seems like there isn't any one issue that the Writers Guild of America is kind of seizing with the strike or is looking for um to be reflected in like their new deals with studios. It seems like there's a host of issues going on. 
Yeah, look, and I'll start by saying I am not a member of the Writers Guild. Um, our company is not a AMPTP company. I know a lot, but there's a lot I don't know. So I can talk in generalities, which I'm happy to do. The actual specifics of certain issues, I know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to, to really lay out. But I, I think I have a pretty good grasp in sort of the the bigger issues that they're looking at. And I really don't think there are any, you know, one particular issue. I think some of the issues are in reaction to changes in the business. And I think some of the issues are, have been gestating for a while and they're trying to address. And I think they can fall into a, a couple of broader categories. Um, and again, not saying this in, in exclusion of anything in particular or in trying to highlight anything in particular, but the, the things that have been, talked a lot about and the things that we saw a year ago that could be potential issues, I think fall into a couple of categories. I think one of the big categories is the residuals issue. Um, this affects both film and TV writers and really is related to streamers more than the more traditional sort of avenues for release of films and TV series. Um, and, and that's and, one where it's basically like, with traditional TV, traditional TV shows, let's say you do a hundred episodes and then you can kind of sell, do a syndication deal. And each month a check will come in for the number of episodes that aired and with streaming, streaming services like Netflix and Amazon basically took that off the table years ago. Right. Yeah. They, they basically, you know, and for various reasons, they took it off the table. One of which, you know, they've said is, you know, it's hard for us to track who's watching what it, it, you know, residuals really came about when when studios and networks were, as you said, releasing this content multiple times in different windows and different media around the world. And it gave the writers an ability to participate in the upside in that. And it's not just writers. I mean, the, this issue will become an issue for the DJ and SAG and their negotiations. But when streamers came along, it was a different model. And I believe at first they weren't paying anything for streaming and in residuals. It was all about upfront compensation. They've modified a little bit, I think, in the last agreement where there is a formula for certain types of residuals to be paid, but it doesn't equate in any way to what writers would get in success in these more traditional media. And, you know, it, it ties in a little bit with as guarantees that writers were getting up front for being paid have, have been squeezed in, in many ways. And we can talk about that in a minute of some of the other issues they're dealing with. Residuals really were a way for writers to have a consistent cash flow to stay in a business where they're really, you know, they're for higher writers, right? These are not salaried people in the sense that they have consistent compensation, you know, year round. So this was a way to supplement the guaranteed writing fees they were getting on many other shows. And look, it's a massive profit center down the road for very successful shows, that's not in my mind a bad thing because that's an incentive for you know people to work hard to to get there. Where I think it hit streamers is, you know, streaming where their revenue comes from is their subscriber base and now advertising, but not in the multiple selling of content over time. So it they're just different models that don't work together. And I think it's gotten to a point now where it's gotten way too one-sided because there's so much content going to streaming that there needs to be an adjustment and alignment in the ability for, you know, writers and, and folks in other unions, by the way, producers as well in a different way to participate in the success of shows that keep bringing subscribers to these, you know, these streamers. So I think the residual issue is one issue. I, I, another issue that has come up is what I think they're calling span protection, which is, you know, when you were a writer writing, and a lot of this is TV related, not feature related. A lot of it, a lot of the issues with the guilds right now are, are heavily more towards TV than film side. Right. When TV you were, yeah, it, when you have a writer that was working on 22 episodes of a show and they were guaranteed a certain amount per episode, they could be working 40, 42 weeks, you know, on that show. So yes, they, there was weeks they weren't working in a year, but for the most part, they were, had a pretty consistent income if they had a show that was going and what's happened now, and again, a lot of a lot of this is streamer related, um, moving to these more limited series or eight to ten episodes, that hasn't always translated to an equal amount of time reduced. So you get to a place where if somebody was working on 
each episode and their compensation would normally cover three, four weeks of work. That worked when there was 22 episodes. Now you've got eight to 10 episodes, but that compensation may be working for eight to 10 weeks of work because these episodes tend to be bigger. It hasn't translated to additional compensation for that time. So it's still per episode based. So this issue of span protection of, and which has been negotiated partly as well, which I think they're looking for more protection on is it covers a certain number of weeks rather than an episode so that they know if something goes on longer, there is additional money paid for that. Um, And what has become a really big issue again in the TV world. And this I think affects both streaming and typical network and cable. Although I don't think it has been the practice as much in the network side is this whole concept of a mini room for writers, which, Mm -hmm. you know, traditionally, you know, look in, in making anything, there's risk sharing, right? Which is, how much money is a streamer or a network or a cable provider going to say, we're going to deploy this much capital to see if there's a series here that we're going to go forward with. And what it's been moving to is instead of getting the 10 or 22 episodes written and then going, uh, why don't we write a pilot, maybe one additional episode, and then let's put together this mini room where we're going to break down the rest of the season so we can see what it's going to look like before we make these decisions. And in doing that, we're not going to hire your typical writer's room of, eight, 10, 12 people. We want to hire a main writer and maybe two or three additional people to come in, none of which are guaranteed anything beyond that initial, what I would call venture step of let's create something to see if we want to go down that road. And the pushback has been from the writers and from the writers that I've spoken to of what it's done is created a incentive where less money is committed up front before you know you're making a series. Now, look, as a independent producer, I understand that mindset because you always want to spend as little as you can before you're committing to a whole thing to see how much you have. But in doing that, you've created a scenario where fewer writers are working and really the younger writers aren't being let in these rooms to be trained to go run shows. And that's become a massive issue, I think, with with the writers. Those are the big financial issues as I see them, um, sort mm-hmm. of streaming, the amount of time you're working for compensation, obviously minimum compensation is going to be negotiated like in every deal, like that, but that's fairly standard. And then this idea that less writers are going to be in a room. And, you know, it's interesting because I've, I've spoken to writers on both sides of this where, you know, there are some writers who want to write more of their own stuff, but I think they, even they would say it's important to have people to bounce ideas off of. It's important to get our next generation of writers up and ready. And it's important to make sure that we are building for the future. And it really comes down to how, I'll use the word pregnant, how pregnant can you get one of these companies funding your production at the beginning to spend more to make sure that you have a show that would go, right? Um, I mean, look, we were very fortunate with The Night Agent. Um, it did very well for Netflix and and was one of the top five streaming shows and got picked up for a second season literally within two or three days, which is kind of unheard of these days. And then we put together a writer's room, but now that's on hold. So until the strike ends, that's there. But even that was a, I believe, a conversation of how many writers are we going to have in that room? Can we staff it appropriately the right way? And, you know, building towards that is is, is tough. The other big area that is, is really going to affect everybody is AI. And um, the concern that, and the writer's concern that you're going to use or that the studios will use AI to replace writers. And look, at the end of the day, I I just don't believe, and maybe it's me being naive and maybe it's me not seeing far enough in the future that AI is really going to be able to replace the true creative content that's created by writers. Is it going to become a tool that's going to assist in that process? That's where I think we need to start looking at because like anything with technology, right? Technology can make things faster, easier, better, but are they taking jobs? And there's going to be some of that that's going to happen. The hard part for me as an outsider looking at it is, is I don't think we know yet how much it's going to affect different areas of anything that we do as, as content creators. So I do understand that, it, you know, it's to be feared. I do understand that, you know, you know, there's this word optim- optimization in the business, which is, can you do it faster, cheaper with, you know, less people? Um, but is that at the cost of the how creative and good something can be? Um, I just think it's too early to know exactly what that is. So if you're negotiating or right now on strike and negotiating, 
how do you try to predetermine every outcome on something we have no idea how it's going to be used yet? And I know that's not in a, you know, it's a bit of an excuse and a bit of a punt and it's always dangerous to punt issues down the road, but maybe there's a way to identify a couple of those now and say, okay, this is how we're going to handle big global issues. And then we need to revisit some of the other stuff, you know, as we go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the AI one seems really tricky because it's like, well, where do you start drawing the lines? Because I understand the concern of, well, I don't want, you know, some studio exec to just have ChatGPT write a script for them based on, you know, whatever idea for some IP spinoff that the studio exec has. But I could also see like a screenwriter. I mean, anyone who's ever looked at a script, it seems really annoying to like write a script and have to format it. I could imagine like it'd be really helpful if a screenwriter could just write up the script in notes or Microsoft Word or whatever and have AI format it for them. And so then it's, well, how do you draw that line between what kind of AI is allowed and what's not? And I'm also wondering like, given the other issues on the table, like the residuals, you know, for one, basically the issues that are more work, less pay for writers, like how much does weight does the AI issue really carry in this negotiation? Like how much of a deal breaker does that become? Cause it's also like the AI stuff, like you mentioned is so new that it's kind of hard to wrap your head around fully right now. Right. But then you, then you worry a little bit right on the other side. And again, I'm not a writer, so it, this doesn't affect me directly of, okay, if we decide not to determine that issue, do we end up four years of not getting compensated for what we gave up? Right. That's really what happened with the residuals, right? It was, oh, it's so new. We don't want to stop. Let's punt that issue. And then, you know, the streamers in the last couple of years have made, uh, you know, huge profits to the expense of, you know, other participants. And look, I think it comes down to a fundamental issue, at least on the financial side, which is you should be rewarded for success, right? Everybody involved in something. And, you know, whether that means you have to look at and say, maybe I give a little on the upfront to make sure I get success, um, you know, that is a balance. And these issues will be resolved. They always are. You know, I was, I was, at, uh, I was running business affairs at Paramount in 2007 in the last rank, Um and that went on for a really long time. And some bad decisions were made, both with respect to projects going forward, but also, you know, with projects that you gave up on because it went on for so long. The one we were talking about it the other day, the one interesting thing about that period is even though it was, I think, 103 days or whatever it was, part of that happened over the holidays, as I recall, like in, you know, sort of the Christmas, New Year's time. So that time in the business is normally a little less busy anyway. This one is, this is normally a robust period of time for film television and it's starting to have a real impact on on everybody um so hopefully what are we'll the impacts you're seeing already look it's been interesting right so there were a number of projects that i won't say got rushed into production but we're ready to go into production we have a movie filming in in ireland right now the script was in great shape so that was ready to go um we're starting to get a little concerned about a DGA and a SAG strike because we'll have a couple of weeks left in our filming schedule. If there is a strike at the end of June, um, you know, we've, we've prepared as best we can and set up the production in a way that there's only one location left during that period of time. So if we have to shut down, which I'm hoping we don't have to do, at least we've mitigated some of the costs that will be about ramping back up. So there, there was the number of productions that just didn't go yet because your scripts weren't ready. So that's one. In TV, especially anything that was in a writer's room ramping up is now on hold. Um, I think there's, you know, the, the streamers say it in particular that they have enough buildup of content that they can last a bit, but there will be a point in time that you miss launch dates that you wanted. Um, and then sort of the ancillary stuff that I've seen from a business perspective, and this just happened last week with a movie, and I don't remember the name of the movie, but it was um, a, a completion bond company, which is more in the independent film and TV world, which is if you are making something and you're having it financed independently and the way that you get paid is that you have to actually deliver the film or the TV series at the end and you're using a bank to finance it, um, bond companies come in and they'll guarantee delivery. So their their job is to make sure hell or high water and whatever happens on this production, at the end of the day, we're going to guarantee that it's going to be completed and delivered to 
the ultimate distributor so that they pay so we can pay back the banks. And it was the first time a bond company came out and said, you know what, because there's a potential impending strike, we're not going to close the completion bond on this film. And something that was supposed to start immediately stopped. So you're starting to see it affect areas outside of what you would normally see. And I think that partly is less because of the WGA strike, because those were only movies that were ready to go, right? If the script wasn't ready, they weren't going to go anyway. But now that you see potential for a DGA and a SAG strike, um, people are getting nervous and that's going to impact all independent film and TV. It's going to impact anything currently shooting that is using SAG or DGA, right? There are international productions that are still going to be able to go on that are using actors' equity rather than SAG because they're international actors that are non-DGA. Um, and I saw somewhere that you know film permits in LA are down 60% right now. And you're going to get to a place where it's really impacting. And I think we're there. It's impacting all the ancillary businesses, right? So, and look for us as a company, we're a small independent, you know, film and TV company. We live and die on making stuff. And fortunately we had something going, but we have three other projects that were lined up to start sort of between August and December that are now on hold is too strong a word, but uncertain. Right. And the amazing thing about our business is momentum is everything. So if you got the stars to align that you did the hard work to creatively get it where you needed it to be, you got the director and the cast ready to go. You have a studio or a network that's said yes. When you push pause, everybody gets that moment to rethink things. And that's a dangerous place to be. And then it starts to impact other schedules that they have post stuff. So, you know, making content is, you know, getting something creatively to the right place is the hard part the harder part is actually getting it made. So once you've aligned all those stars and you're going, you don't want anything to stop it. And we're now at the place that, you know, everything is sort of coming to a rumbling halt um, with no end in sight in the sense of the WGA because they're not even at the table talking. DGA is interesting because they're on a a complete media blackout, which I think is a good thing from a negotiating standpoint, both for the the guild and for the, the studios. But we've heard tangentially that there's some good progress being made, um, which is great. And, they tend to be the guild that is faster to come to terms than the others. In the past, just anecdotally, if DGA got to a deal, WGA and SAG sort of mirrored a lot of things because some issues are similar, but there's many different. This is the first time that I can remember that I'm not sure the DGA getting to a deal actually solves the issues for the WGA and SAG. Um, I think it'll help, but I don't think it's going to be as, you know, everybody always in the past would be like, great, TGA is done. Everything else will fall in line. It's not feeling overly positive that that's going to be the same result here. So I think we're, we're, we're in for a bit of time on this. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we will be right back. I'm Christina Ko, Senior Editor at Custom, Digiday Media's in-house agency. In this podcast, Interstitial Story, sponsored by StackAdapt, we speak with Carly Foy, the company's director of sales, about the changes agencies are experiencing and how they can address remaining skills gaps. A lot of agencies are trying to future-proof their business. So when that does inevitably happen, there are such things as CDPs in place that we're able to connect to and to be able to still have that personalization without leveraging third-party cookies as much. I still think third-party cookies is going to exist in some capacity. It's a massive industry. However, at the end of the day, I think we're going to see a lot of those smaller players and maybe not the most clean players get played out. And more of those heavy hitters, such as Adara or B2B specifically Bombora, those I think will rise to the top, whereas we'll see some others probably fall to the wayside. As third-party cookies are being phased out, agencies are seeing additional shifts. Pitching frequency is changing, according to a survey Digiday and StackAdapt conducted for a recent State of the Industry report. And with this come budget adjustments too. You look at 2023 and you're seeing a rise in four to six times a month in terms of pitching, but you're also seeing a decrease in seven times per month plus. But it's still sizable at the end of the day. I think what we've seen in the pandemic is what we refer to as revenge spending. And because of this, we saw the rise of direct-to-consumer brands. And I think those direct-to-consumer brands are the ones that are probably suffering the most. These advertisers are also the ones that tap into social media and search digital marketing avenues. And a lot of the times they don't have experiences 
with attribution specifically, and marketing is usually the first budget to get cut. When you are a smaller direct-to-consumer brand, no matter how successful you are, we're starting to see them turn towards agency partners to get the help where they need. And I think a lot of the time when we look at GA versus social versus search, what would happen is channels like programmatic and traditional advertising would completely be negated and cut to focus on those lower funnel channels. These DTC brands are starting to recognize that they can't necessarily do that, especially when it comes to the cookie apocalypse. They're realizing they need an attribution system and they need to have advanced analytics to be able to understand the consumer profile outside of what can be offered via search and via social as well. Agencies are increasingly seeing direct-to-consumer brands turning to them for help, especially as these brands realize that the impending cookie deprecation means a big change in the way they're used to building and understanding consumers. However, this is interesting to think about in light of the skills gaps Carly sees among many agency teams. It's mostly within attribution and advanced data analytics. I think that's probably the biggest gap because a lot of the stuff that they've highlighted specifically, like strategy, for example, and creative production, that's all inputs from your analytics. At the end of the day, the whole nature of digital advertising was a way to be able to track outside of Nielsen being like, oh, this family of five watches this TV show and it's a sample size of a thousand. You now have a pretty robust sample size to be able to inform your overall digital marketing strategies and even your traditional marketing strategies. So I think for me specifically, the gap that I see the most is in the audience analytics and understanding the attribution models that you should be looking toward. I think there's been leaps and bounds in terms of what we can offer from an attribution standpoint, not just at Stack It Up, but as a complete industry. But I think the problem is that one, that costs money, and two, people do still have this mindset that search is king or whatever traditional or whatever advertising avenue they prefer is the one that they will always look towards as being their universal source of truth. You've been listening to Carly Foy, Director of Sales at StackAdapt, our sponsor on this episode. And now back to the Digiday podcast. For any listener who hasn't been following this stuff super closely, so Writers Guild's on strike, they went on strike, you know, early May, and now the DGA, which is the Directors Guild, and SAG-AFTRA, which is the Screen Actors Guild, their deals are set to expire June 30th. And so I think it's, what is it, SAG has already, like, taken a vote or is, like, going to, like, yeah, I think, I think they to look- take a vote on... Yeah, usually, and that's pretty common that, you know, you get your members to pre-authorize a strike just because it gives you sort of a bullet in the chamber, you know, of like, now we're serious. DG, the Directors Guild is currently negotiating. They've been negotiating for, I think, 10 days. SAG-AFTRA is set to start negotiating June 7th, I believe. Um, so we'll get some in- indication of where things are. Um, but, you know, it's it's so funny because WGA, for some reason... Their contract is always, I think, 30 or 60 days ahead of expiration of, of, DAG and, of DJ and SAG. And, you know, from my perspective, I always looked at it as like, why don't we just line them all up? <laughs> you know, <laughs> if we're going to be in a place of negotiating with everybody anyway, let's do it all or nothing. Because the doomsday scenario is everybody goes on strike. I do believe that will be the fastest way to get everybody back in a room, just because that is, I mean, that is the business coming to a complete halt although it is sort of coming to a halt anyway. Um, and, you know, it, it's, you know, we're in an interesting position as a company because on the one hand, we are independent producers that, you know, content, 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 we try and make everything we can. On the other hand, one of my partners is a very big member of the WGA, um, you know, one of the biggest writers in Hollywood. And, you know, we respect all the issues that he's dealing with and negotiating with. And, you know, it, um, Not everything that we do as a company is written by, by Jamie, but a number of scripts are. Um, So, you know, it, uh, it's an interesting place to be in Um, because if DJ and SAG come to terms, you know, the scripts that are ready to go, like we'll go. The ones that are not ready are still going to be sort of on hold. Um, And, you know, it's just look, I think overall unions provide a benefit because, especially in the world of where we are now with studios and networks and streamers being so corporate that it, you know, it it gives a voice to a lot of people that wouldn't have that voice otherwise.
Um, right. Yeah. I mean, and that's something we also see, like even outside of the entertainment industry when it comes to like publishers and there's a lot of newsroom union. It's just because, and it's similar conditions of, you know, journalists feeling like more work, less pay or less opportunity to pay or limited pay, limited benefits, limited protections. Um, so there's definitely a through line there. So, so yeah, I mean, as we've been talking about, like there is a very real potential that July 1st, Directors Guild on strike, Screen Actors Guild on strike, Writers Guild on strike. And so like you were talking about with that project, you all are, have in production, you may have to like, you got, you got to think to like, how much can you wrap by July 1st? There's, it's obviously like very different conditions or kind of underlying circumstances from spring 2020. But similarly, that was another period of time where like productions ground to a halt. And so is that anything where like you're kind of looking back at how Project X, how you all handled that or how you kind of got back into production on projects to like kind of be preparing for however long this this hiatus may be? Yeah, I mean, look, every single day we go through, uh, you know, the five scenarios of, okay, what do we do if DGA doesn't go out, but SAG goes out? What do we do if they both go out? Um, are there any, and, and intentionally we set it up that we're like all of our distant locations are going to be done by June 30th. So the remainder of the movie we had planned, not originally, but when we knew this was a potential, we put it all on the soundstage. So we have our build on the stage that we can hold. So then it's only holding one location rather than trying to figure out a bunch of locations to hold. Then we started having the conversation of, you know, most of our cast is from here, but they're over in Ireland. Do we bring them all back? right? Is what's the cost of bringing everybody back when all of those flights versus keeping them there and housing them, right? And then also making sure that, you know, they're entertained and, and in a way don't create a problem. Um, so that we're evaluating, you know, is there a version of if DJ's here, but sags out, is there anything we can do while we're not filming? Now we don't have all the footage done. So technically we can't have them start cutting a movie yet. So there's, there's a bunch of different scenarios that we run a checklist every day of how do we make sure that we don't affect the creative vision of the film, but minimize cost in everything that we do. And look, we got this one up and running. Universal is a great partner and they were willing to start going because we had a good plan, um, always knowing that there was a potential. But that didn't mean that we didn't look to say, okay, you know, are there some six, normally you shoot five day weeks on location. Are there some six and seven days that maybe we can accelerate some things to make sure we're in the best position for a strike. And our job as producers is to look at every scenario every day to keep the, the creative, the best creative version of what it is and minimize the cost if there's a way to do it. And sometimes there are, and sometimes there's not. I mean, like spring 2020 was a whole different thing. You know, we weren't actually in production on anything when that happened, but we were one of the first movies to go back for Paramount with Scream that we convinced the studio, even before they had all their guidelines lined up, of here's our plan to go shoot this movie in the most, the safest way we know how right now. And every day that was evaluated. So it's really interesting because I think the last, the, the business and producers and real producers, when I mean, you know, line producers and folks that are on the ground, that they're one of the best groups of people in any situation to get from point A to point B. That's just what they do. They move entire, almost armies of people and supply lines and, you know, locations and you deal with, you know, all these things that can come up in contingencies. So it's one of the smartest groups that you can have out there to help strategize for this. But if there's a work stoppage, there's <laughs> not much you can do. Um, you know, and, and we tend to work with the same folks over and over again. It's just one of our mottos of our company. If like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And we like the people that we work with. Um, this is our fourth movie with the, the, with Radio Silence as directors and, you know, we have some of the great key technical people that we've had with them. So we have a shorthand on a lot of it, but there's only so much you can control. And, you know, we have a movie that's supposed to start up in, in, in August, September. That's now, you know, we have a plan in place, but we're going to have to start delaying some of that plan because with filming, a lot of the spend is up front, right? To you're building everything out, you're getting everybody there, not knowing where we're going to be with those two unions delays some of that plan. So if normally you were going to start August, September, you would start deploying people and capital in a meaningful way, probably mid June. I think we're now going to push that a little bit to say, okay, let's not start that 
until we know where we are. And that could then do one of two things. It could delay everything a month or projects will fall apart. There are projects that came together just because it was the right time for people to be working on them and it was the right availability for people to be doing it. And if those are delayed, a lot of them will still happen. Some will absolutely fall apart, which is that that's the fear always. Yeah, with that contingency planning, like, so it sounds like part of that is just knowing what the timeline is for when things would need to be done and kind of moving those back. Are there any other aspects of the contingency planning, like for that project in particular, that can offer kind of something of a template or an example for like how projects that haven't even yet been in production, but are scheduled to soon be in production will need to adapt or what producers, crews, talent, like everyone is having to kind of strategize for in the case of a work stoppage? Yeah, look, I think, you know, the as I said, it's not rocket science what we do, right? So you have this amazing pre-production. You have sort of three plans when you go make a movie or a TV series. You have your pre-production, you have your production, and you have your post, right? And you literally have a day-to-day calendar during your pre-production period of these are all the milestones I need to hit to make sure I hit my production date. And if any of those slip, then the entire production schedule then has to be readjusted. Some of which was we were planning to make sure we were done before the holidays, but now we might have to have breaks for the holidays if we start everything later. And then your post schedule is very dependent on not only when you complete your production period, but also when you're supposed to release it and distribute it, right? Because theatrically, you're going to have release dates that marketing is going to start spending some money and getting advertising out for that. In TV, you're filling slots of when series are going to be. As one thing slips, it has a domino effect on everything else. And I think the best we can do right now is make sure we have a very detailed day-by-day plan of these are the milestones that we have to hit. Maybe these are some of the milestones that we can accelerate if there's a two-week stoppage versus a four-week stoppage. And sometimes that means spending a little bit more money, but are you going to save money because then on the tail end, you're going to be out of locations before the holidays, so I'm not going to have a hiatus for the break. Every day we're reevaluating that plan. And you have to think of every possible sort of contingency that you can build real realistically to try and do that. And again, all with at the, at the end of the day, making sure number one, everybody still stays attached. And number two, that you're not going to impact creatively the film, right? Some of that might be, you know, a location that we thought we were going to go shoot. We now can't shoot because there's weather issues that we wouldn't have had if we were wrapped by October, but now if we're going to wrap at the end of December, I got to deal with snow, right? So it, it is, it is, it gets very complicated and, it's a group of very smart people that work very hard to, to do that. And, but the overall template of sort of your prep period, your production period, and your post period, that doesn't really change project to project. It doesn't even change for TV. It, where it'll change in series and episodic work a little bit is, you know, like The Night Agent, we shot all 10 episodes sort of straight through. So we had the same teams. Directors were different on different episodes, but the core people around them were all the same. So we knew that we could do that. If you have breaks in between episodes, that overcomplicates it even more. Um, and look, you know, it, it, it's become an issue with so much content of making sure you have available crews and available sound stages. And you have to make guarantees to these people to keep them on your shows. If you can't make those guarantees, it becomes a free-for-all again when things free up of what do they go do? And it gets, you know, cast who you know, may have been on a series, but was going to go, we're going to go do a movie before the second season, that window of when they could go do that movie may disappear because of these strikes. Cause the series will still come back up. Cause that wasn't scheduled to go till later anyway, assuming the scripts are ready, but it, it is, it's like a puzzle. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a really hard puzzle. Um, and it's like it a puzzle made of dominoes, <laughs> by the way, a hundred percent, but that's, you know, look, that's the, this business a lot anyway, you know, it's, very a big part of our jobs and especially you know my partners who are on set is dealing with the problem that comes up that morning right you can only prepare for the things you know they're going to hit you can prepare certain things for things because you know look certain issues happen over and over the pandemic nobody was prepared for and then very quickly people tried to figure out the best version of getting there um look this is the first movie we've been back on where it started after the day that all the sort of restrictions were lifted from the unions. So just having your directors and your cast without masks on set is kind of a 
innovative new thing. Um, but it's, it's a good way to look at it. It's a puzzle, puzzle built by dominoes that dissolve. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it is, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's, you know, there's look in, in my career and I've been doing this now, God, way too long. You know, there's things that have come up that you could never imagine and you deal with them on one show and all of a sudden you're like, Oh no, I know how to deal with that next time. Right. I mean, we had, we were shooting a movie weirdly in Ireland 20 plus years ago where we were in a national forest that was closed for mad cow disease. And we had hundreds of horses that couldn't cross into this forest anymore. And we're like, but that's where our castle's built. <laughs> it's like, so the, it's just crazy things that you never think would come up, can come up and you have to figure out how to adapt to them. Um, this one, everybody knew this was coming, right? We all knew that there was a potential for a strike. We were all hopeful that they wouldn't get there. It felt like it was sort of on this one, it, it, sort of, it was going to happen no matter what, right? This one never felt like it was going to get solved in the pre-negotiation. Question is now, how do we come back from it? And how do we get, how do we minimize the amount of time gone? And, you know, it's, there's some real issues out there for, and as, you know, some of these streamers and, and have gotten extraordinarily, and I won't call them profitable because I do think that there is amazing revenue and not all of them are super profitable yet. And <laughs> it's that's like whole, Netflix is profitable, everyone else, no, not so much. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? It's, it's, um, it, it, it is an interesting time in our business. Um, that is affecting the unions, but it's affecting, you know, other folks as well, you know? So it's, and it's going to be, um, and, and look at the, the areas that become opportunistic is, you know, reality TV is becoming a big thing. Not that it was ever not a big thing, but even for a company like ours, which is, we're not a reality TV based company, we've been pitched more projects that are reality based. And we're looking at a couple realistically to say, this might be an interesting thing to do in this short period of time, you know, animation has always been an area that has sort of all of a sudden got peaked interest when there's a strike from the writers guild because generally that's not controlled by the WGA. So, you know, we, we pivot just like everybody else pivots because you got to pay for college and for, you know, <laughs> the kids to go to school and, you know, our employees and, and all those things. And you try and be opportunistic where you can be opportunistic, but it is, it's sad to see what's happening right now. Right. And the squeezing of a lot of these folks. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, cause especially like, it seems like the picket lines are kind of joyous. Isn't the right word, but everyone seems to be like in pretty good spirits. All things considered, there are some really funny signs out there, but I mean, we're also talking about people who aren't working right now, aren't getting paid and getting into like the broader economy that, you know, there's still the fear of recession. Um, it seems like the, the debt, you know, ceiling we're, that's averted for now, like the debt crisis averted for now, but you know, still it's just like, uh, things can get tough. Um, going back to the streaming residuals front. So one thing you kind of alluded to is like, well, historically the streaming residuals discussion was around subscription revenue and kind of getting a cut of that as a way to like, um, replace the back end from traditional TV. I remember, you know, last year leading up to Netflix debuting its ad supported tier, there was a lot of conversation of like, will Netflix start sharing ad revenue with producers? Should Netflix be sharing ad revenue for, 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 with producers? Is Should that be a new model? That never came to pass. But is that anything at all on the table now in light of the writer strike and the you know, potential for the DGA and SAG after to go on strike. Look, too. I think everything's on the table, right? Um, because there has to be, I don't think anybody believes there won't be some equitable shift in a formula to share upside, right? I, I, I don't think it gets solved without that. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that looks like. Clearly there's a way to track individual shows and their performance. No question about that. Whether or not the Netflixes, the Amazons, the Apples are going to share that is going to be a whole different conversation. Um, if we get to that place, then the question is, okay, well, what is the pot of money that gets split up? And if you look at the streaming services, right, the only revenue they have is subscriptions, ad revenue, and down the road if they decide to relicense their stuff elsewhere, whether or not they do that or not. Which some of that. them are doing. Yeah, which, by the way, is... You know, it's always so interesting. We talk about it a lot at the company that sort of our business was always built on spending a lot of money on a piece of content that was then sold over and over and over and over and over again in multiple markets, 
in multiple time frames and multiple modes of different distribution. And streamers came in and spent as much, if not more, on some of the content and release it to the world one time. And there's a lot of really excitement about that. As a content creator, I love the fact that that our show, The Night Agent, was literally in 150 countries all on day two, right? And in places where you never thought it was going to be super successful, it was. But then you look at the long-term value of that to me as a producer and then to also the creators of the show, the value proposition is a little different because massively successful doesn't really other than it being picked up for subsequent seasons, which is fantastic and we're super excited and they've been a great partner, you know, both creatively and in supporting the show. It's different than the financial model had we been in a more traditional form of media. So I do think there has to be an acknowledgement and a allocation of that success. And the question is, where's it going to come from? It, there's not a lot of places it can come from. So how they decide to break it up and to, find a way to share in success, it's going to have to come, I believe, from those areas, right? It just, it, it's how it works. And I wouldn't be surprised. And I think, look, I think David Zaslaw said it in an interview that he wouldn't be surprised if at some point some of these streaming services all got aggregated and you paid one provider and got all the services, right? And would that be bad for the business? And we can argue both ways that it could or couldn't be, but that's very similar to what happened to the cable business years ago, right? which is if you <laughs> wanted one, it's, it's this weird circle, right? Which is maybe things weren't so broken, <laughs> right? Um, and, and all things always in our business end up back in some kind of circle. So it will need to be solved. I, I do think that there is, look, as I understand it, advertisers pay more to be on the more successful shows, right? So, it all, if everybody's making more money because something is in super success other than all of the creators, that's where we end up where we are right now. And I do think there has to be a, an adjustment of that. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if that is something that is on the table to discuss in some way. Because um, I don't know where it comes from otherwise, right? And, you know, look, the, the great news about the Netflixes and the Amazons and the Apples of the world is they're making amazing content, right? It's There's good shows there. And so people are still going to, use those services. Um, I think as long as they can, I mean, it's interesting with Netflix announcing, you know, this new thing where, you know, you, the additional users on your account, if they don't live in your household, it's additional charges, just another way for them to make revenue, you know, as a parent of four kids that as of August will not be living Ouch. in my household. I look at that and go, wait, my Netflix bill is going from here to here. Maybe I understand it with my oldest two who are out in the workforce and, providing, but my two kids that are students, why should they not be able to, you know, it, it's just, it's a really, there's interesting choices that are going to have to be made across right. multiple, multiple, multiple places. Um, yeah. Although then like your producer hat on, depending on how these negotiations shake out, maybe, you know, that, you know, the new password, you know, sharing and having to pay for the people outside the household that could work into a favorable back end. More revenue, night right? agent three years. 100%. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's so many competing issues. And look, I, I was part of the studio system for a very long time. I mean, I worked when I was at Paramount, you know, in, in my job in their business affairs group was to make sure we were maximizing revenue at all times for the studio. Um, you know, we didn't get involved in some of the downstream, you know, residuals kinds of things. But our job was to make sure that we were, you know, making it as equitable as we could for the studios and for you know, for hopefully the town. I mean, it was interesting. I was there when a time when a lot of the first dollar gross talent deals went away, right? And what that basically meant, you know, for some of your listeners that may or may not know, is that big A-plus writers, not writers so much as directors and, and actors and some producers would not only get a certain amount of money to be in the movie, right? That was their fixed compensation, but they got a, a piece of the back end called first dollar gross, which meant regardless of the performance of how it did, they were getting a piece of every dollar that came into the studio. And we looked at it and said, that is a model that just feels kind of broken, which is if it doesn't work and we're paying you a lot up front, for whatever reason it didn't work, whether it was creatively didn't come out or the studio didn't market it or distribute it well, should there be additional compensation paid until the studio recouped its, its, you know, its costs in there? And we shifted, like a lot of the studios, to a model where 
look, we're still going to pay you up front and we're going to pay you on the back, but, and we'll give you more, right? Cause you're now betting a little bit on yourself, but that doesn't kick in until we're profit in true profit on that one movie. Right. And it became an, your interest got more aligned, which was in big success. Everybody did really, really well. The studio actually did a little less well because talent was making more, but it, kept us alive in the sense of we weren't losing money on things that weren't working. You know, it's interesting to think, is there a similar model that could work, you know, in, in the world of, of, of the streaming residuals, which is shows that don't work. I understand not paying out massive amounts of additional money. I get it. I, I, I think most people would understand that, but in things that are really successful, it doesn't feel right that that's not the case. And I would argue that some of those successful shows are why subscribers are staying, you know, and, I don't think anybody would say it's inherently unfair to get additional revenue and things that didn't work, right? That just doesn't feel, it just, I'm not trying to simplify it, but there, there has to be a model in there that, that we get there on. Um, and there will be, because even in past strikes, they always figure something out. And I think it's going to make everybody a little, I was, you know, when I was at Paramount, one of the things I would always joke about when I spoke to like college students and law students was, you know, a good negotiation for me was when both sides were a little unhappy because that meant nobody was fully getting taken advantage of, right? You could look at it the other way, which is everyone's just a little happy, right? And I think that it's going to take everybody being a little bit more giving here on both sides to get a deal done, right? It's going to be the, the, you know, the, the, these studios and networks and streamers saying, okay, we're going to give more than we wanted to. And it's going to be the other side saying, you know what, we've gotten more than than we had. It may be not everything, but let's all get back to work. Um, again, that doesn't solve the AI problem, but it, that's a whole, that's a whole other, it we is. don't have enough time for that conversation, but Paul, no, okay. It was really uh, interesting. We I had, um, yeah. one of my kids, you know, one of their college exams was the professor actually told them to use AI to write the essay for them. And then their assignment was to critique the essay and show what they would have done differently. Uh, so that's interesting. there's ways to think around AI that we can get there. But yeah, yeah. if you could solve that issue, I'd be super happy. Put you in the bar. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we'll have to <laughs> dedicate a whole other episode to having that conversation. But Paul, thanks so much for coming on. It's always really helpful talking with you. So appreciate you taking the time. Happy to do it. And I, like, I, I hope this comes to an end soon, selfishly for us, but also just for everybody out that's, uh, that's not working right now. And also those of us in the audience who just like having good stuff to watch. And thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. And we'll be back next week with another episode.